Well, hey, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome here to our Acts study as we continue uh, walking through the book of Acts uh, here at, at Wildwood on Wednesday nights, and glad to see all of you here with us in the room, as well as all of you who are joining us online. Um, also, just for everybody to know, that these Wednesday night offerings that we have, um, you know, come in, in a little bit of waves, and that this class is a five-week session. It's right there on the, actually it's not on that slide, but it is on a slide, uh, as we have uh, the, the fact this is a five-week uh, class that we're working through here. Um, but when we think about the, the five weeks of the class uh, that we have, when, it's, when it wraps up, there'll be some other opportunities to study the scriptures and to think about life and our faith in different ways. And one of those op- options that is going to be heading our way it's going to be led by Pastor John Abernathy, and we've invited him to come and share with us a little bit about what is coming next um, after this class is done. My name's my name is John Abernathy. I know most of you, I think, out there. Um, I'm excited. This is my first time back in the building on a Wednesday night. So Mark was like, "Are you emotional?" Are you? And I'm like, "Well, I hadn't thought about it till you said that. Maybe I, <laughs> but now I feel emotional. So I, I don't know, but." Um, you know, sometimes it can feel like we're caught up uh, in the world that's just here and now, right? It can seem just like our faith, just like what's going on is all there is. But one thing that I love to do is, um, is study church history and study people throughout history. And um, that's what this course is going to be. Let me see if I can make Mark's slides go forward. Go back. Go back. There you go. There we go. There we go. You're not going to see it at the back of the room. You see it right ah, there. Ah, that's it. Sorry. Told you it's my first time, so I get a pass for just this time only. So, uh, One way we learn about God's faithfulness is by looking back at his faithfulness uh, in other people's lives and in other civilizations and how believers lived. So this course for these three weeks is going to be studying from, a, we're going to study from about 70 A.D. Uh, and the fall of Jerusalem up till about 410 A.D. in three weeks. And it's going to be exciting. Um, have you ever wanted to know or to study uh, what happened with believers after the first disciples. So in that next generation and the generation after them, what was it like? How did Christians live? How did they worship? Did they all get thrown to the lions in the Colosseum? What was it like living in the Roman Empire? How fast did Christianity spread? We have writings, letters, and other things from that time period, and we know those things. Pretty cool. So we're going to look at those. Uh, We're going to see martyrs like Ignatius and Polycarp and Justin and how they lived out their faith in that that godless Roman empire, in that culture. It might have been a lot like our culture today. Um, We know how Romans treated Christians. We have their letters, like the letter from Pliny that we'll look at. Um, We saw and we'll know, excuse me, we'll see and we'll learn how Christians worshipped, how they gathered together. We have a letter from Justin about 150 A.D., and we can see, what did Christians do back then? Did it look like our service today? Uh, We can also see how they dealt with refuting errors, right, about who Jesus is and who Jesus was, and we'll see that we struggle with and still have some of the same errors in our beliefs and churches today. Uh, So it's it's important to look back at those as well. Uh, We'll also see a shift as Constantine the Great in, a, in just after 300 A.D., after the Diocletian persecution, Constantine takes over the world and he legalizes Christianity. And so all of a sudden, Christians are allowed to share their faith. 
What did it look like when that happened? So as you can tell, I get a little bit excited about this. Um, I'm looking forward to the opportunity for us to gather together over the next three weeks after Mark's through Acts. So um, if you have any questions or about the class, be sure and contact me. And uh, again, I'm excited to see how God has worked throughout history uh, to show his faithfulness and how we can grow in our faith from that. Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks, John. Well, I am excited for us to continue our study of the book of Acts tonight. And uh, as we began a few weeks ago, we, we've talked about how the book of Acts tells the story about how Christianity was contagious. In its first you know, days, it began in one location, but it quickly spread around the Roman Empire. And we think about just the extent of that. It did not stop in the Roman Empire, but it has kept going all the way through time. And 2,000 years later, billions of people have come to faith in Christ. Well, how did that happen? Well, it happened at the beginning when Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, and then lit the flame of his church that has been growing ever since. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And the book of Acts tells that story of the growth of the church in its earliest days. Uh, and we're looking at that together over this number of weeks. Again, we've begun each week with this picture. And so somebody tell me, what is this a picture of? It's a picture of a cross. And where is this cross? It's in Rome in the Colosseum. And this cross that hangs in the, the Roman Colosseum is hung in which gate? The emperor's gate. It's where Caesar would enter. And so in the place that once represented Roman power, now stands a cross pointing to Jesus. And so at, at the moment of the first century, when the Colosseum was being built, Rome looked very powerful and the church looked very small. But what has happened over 2,000 years is Rome, like every other human establishment, has come and gone. But the church has continued to grow. And we've been looking at the spread of Christianity and its growth around the world and how it even impacts you and I through the book of Acts together. Now, in this study, we have seen that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is a good summary outline of the entire book. Jesus and his ascension said to his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was not so much a command as it was a promise. That is what was going to happen. And in the book of Acts, we see that promise materialize. As the disciples, as the Spirit comes upon them, are witnesses in the city of Jerusalem. And then throughout the province of Judea, ultimately into Samaria. And in, as we're going to see tonight, progressing on to the ends of the earth. So I'm excited for us to see this story to continue to unfold in these verses. Now, in our study, we began and we saw how the church is really the body of Christ, that Jesus is alive and well. He is risen. He's not retired. We saw that in the first nine chapters. And then we saw in our last time how the church was growing and going in the sense that the church was being, people were being added day by day, and it was expanding beyond the Middle East on into other areas of the world through Paul's first missionary journey. And so that's some of what we have seen so far. Now, 
When we continue to think about this, in week one, we saw that Jesus is risen, not retired, that Jesus is the same today as he was in his earthly ministry, and Jesus is also, or humanity is the same. So the people that rejected Jesus rejected his followers. And we have seen that witnesses were sent out around the world and that it brought about transformation in the lives of individuals, even like the Apostle Paul. And then in our second session, we saw the growth of the church through human leader ministry, through Peter and through Paul, and ultimately through this really significant church meeting known as the Jerusalem Council. And what transpired from there was authorization that people could come to Christ directly. They did not need to become Jewish first. And so we've seen that so far, but tonight we're going to look at the next wave of the book of Acts as we see planting in difficulty, in other words, planting of churches and difficulty that came associated with that as we look at Acts 15.36 through 18.22. These verses encompass what is commonly known as Paul's second missionary journey. Why is it called his second missionary journey? Because it was the second missionary journey, right? It's not a trick question. Last time we talked about his first missionary journey. This time it's his second missionary journey. And we see that play out in these verses here. Now, it's helpful for us to remember that the missionary journeys of Paul were taken by real people going to real places, happening in real time. Now, this helps us to make sense of our New Testament, because inside of our New Testament, there's a number of letters that were written to locations. The letter to the Philippians, the letter to the Galatians, the the letter to the Colossians, the, the letter to the Thessalonians, the Corinthians, and so on. Or letters to individuals. This letter went to Timothy, that letter went to Titus, and so on and so on. Those letters came to real people in real places in real times. And it's helpful for us to see the writing of those letters and how they map to the places and the names that we're going to see in tonight's study of Acts 15 through 18. This is an outline of the book of Acts and the writing of the New Testament letters that's prepared by Wilkinson and Boa in their um, really helpful book, uh, Talk Through the Bible. But in this, we see the events transpiring inside of uh, history. Now, from this point over, from this first Roman imprisonment back, those are the events that take place during the time period of the book of Acts. So up top, we have the key events that are happening at that time. And at the bottom, we have the letters that were written by Paul to specific churches during those eras. And there's even some best understanding dates associated with those letters so we know when they were written. So we see in this part of the story that Paul went to places like Macedonia and Achaia and Greece and and Asia and Galatia and Rome. And during that time, after visiting a number of those places, he wrote letters to those folks who lived in Corinth and Rome and Thessalonica and Galatia and other places. And so we see a very real connection between the letters that we see inside of our New Testament and the people and places that we're going to see tonight. 
Not only that, but we're going to see Paul meet friends that he ultimately is going to write letters to that are included inside of our New Testament, including people like Timothy, who becomes a part of Paul's traveling party during this era. And he's going to meet people like Luke, who is going to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so it's exciting for us to see these things transpire and to remember that the Bible is not a book of fairy tales, it's a book of history. And we see that echoed when we look at some of these locations. It's also helpful for us to orient to a map so that we, again, are reminded that this is a real journey going to real towns where the gospel was shared with real people. And so this is a, a map of the, um, of, of the Mediterranean Sea, the Roman Empire, and the places that Paul visited on his second missionary journey. Now, again, you look at this, if you can read all of that, then you don't need glasses, or, or you need the glasses that are on your face, because this is very small print. But I just want to remind you that all the slides from tonight and from each of these sessions are found on my blog, PastorMarkRobinson.com. If you want to go and look at that later to get a closer look at this, but basically just to see the general flow of the area, uh, it, it's a, a little bit of a photo-negative map. Because the blue we might think is water, and the, the gray we might think is land. It's actually the opposite. The gray is the water, the blue is the land. It's not my map. That's just the way they printed it. But when, when you look at this, you, you see Paul beginning his trip in Antioch. He moves through this region, which is the region of Galatia. He ends up in Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and then Corinth, and then Ephesus, and then back to Jerusalem, Caesarea, and ultimately to Antioch. Now, if you have any understanding of the New Testament, you know that all of those places I just mentioned are places that ring a bell to us because they are the names of the books of our New Testament. So we ought to have a special interest as we look tonight because seeing this trip will help orient us to not only the book of Acts, but also to the letters that Paul would write to the believers in those churches in the days that are following. So we're going to use this area as, as a little bit of a, a road map geographically as we walk through our study tonight. Now, as we begin, I, I, and as we were reminded that Paul wrote uh, his letters and he ministered to real places and to real people, we are also reminded that Paul himself is a real person. Paul was not a superhero. He wasn't Captain America or Iron Man or the Hulk. He was a human being. And because Paul was a human being, he had you know, struggles, just like we do. And he processed things in real time, just like we do. Paul visited a number of locations on this trip, the second missionary journey. And at the end of his trip, he, he ends up at the city of Corinth. Now, Paul described his arrival in the city of Corinth this way. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, how many of you have heard that verse before? Many hands have gone up. This is not an obscure verse. It actually is quoted. Sometimes it's quoted and we didn't even realize it was in the Bible. We just, people will say, like, I was in fear and much trembling. But it's right here from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in verse 3. Though we're familiar with the verse, often we don't think about the context. In other words, 
Why was Paul in much fear and trembling? What was going on around Paul at that moment that had him in such a weakened state by the time he arrived in Corinth? And the answer to that is really the meat grinder of the second missionary journey. And so we will come to understand this statement even more when we think about everything Paul endured on the days leading up to his arrival in Corinth at the end of his second missionary trip. So let's walk through the second missionary journey of Paul. In the first section of this trip, I want to give it this title, The Split and the Setup. The Split and the Setup. And we see this in verses 36 of chapter 15 through verse 10 of chapter 16. What I mean by that is we see the origins of this trip included a split and then included a setup for the journey. Now, when I say the split, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the split of one of the most dynamic ministry teams that the first century knew. That's the breakup of Paul and Barnabas. You might remember that it was Barnabas who went and got Paul off of the scrap heap and invited him back into ministry in the city of Antioch. Paul had been sent to his hometown of Tarsus and was living out his days there thinking that his public ministry, at least on a grand scale, might be over. Even though God had said, you will be my witness to the Gentiles, Paul might have thought the extent of that ministry was only in the city of Tarsus. He had met Barnabas at another trip to Jerusalem, and so Barnabas was aware of him. But it was when the revival broke out in the church at Antioch that Barnabas knew he needed some help. And so he went and got his friend Paul in Tarsus and invited him to come and join the ministry team. From that time forward, Paul and Barnabas were inseparable in ministry. As they went on the first missionary trip together, they were at the Jerusalem Council together. They went and represented the church in Antioch at another meeting in Jerusalem to deliver a financial gift. Uh, They were a dynamic team in the early days of the church. But that team had a shelf life. Their partnership came to an end. And that account is laid out for us in Acts 15, 36 through 41. See, Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. How was their disagreement? It says it was a sharp disagreement. Well, what was the nature of their sharp disagreement? It wasn't over anything doctrinal. It wasn't like one of them said that Jesus is God and the other one said that Jesus is just a good guy. They both agreed on the theology of who Jesus was. They both were believers and followers in Christ but they had a different perspective about someone that wanted to go on the second missionary trip. And that someone was a man by the name of John Mark. You might remember that John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary trip, at least the first leg of that trip. He he went and ministered in one area, and then for whatever reason, he bailed on them for the second half of the trip. When they get ready to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas says, we're going to go, and I've already got my bags packed, and I've already got Barnab- or, uh, John Mark set up, and he's going to be good to go. And, and Paul goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm ready to go. You're ready to go, but we're not bringing John Mark this time. Last time he started and he didn't finish. I don't want him on the team this time around. 
We don't know what they said. We don't know what the tone was. But we know that that difference of opinion about who should be on their team was enough to cause this dynamic team of Paul and Barnabas to split. And they go in different directions. Barnabas grabs John Mark and they go to Cyprus. Paul grabs Silas and they head off on what we know of as the second missionary journey. This is somewhat of the end of Barnabas' story inside of the book of Acts, but we understand that he continued on in ministry and and uh, we will even know that John Mark continued on in ministry and was faithful. How do we know that? Anybody want to guess why we know that? The book of Mark, right? He, he writes, the, he writes the, the gospel of Mark. But, but not only did he write the gospel of Mark, but Paul actually saw tremendous value in Mark down the road. When Paul writes his letter to, second, to, to Timothy, the, the second letter he writes to Timothy, Um, At the end of that book, he says, bring John Mark to me because he is valuable to me in my ministry. So it wasn't a permanent separation between Paul and John Mark, but there was something that was going on within Paul that said, we need to go in different directions. And so whatever it was, the Lord used those interactions to take one team and make it into two teams. One goes to Cyprus, the other heads into Galatia. Now, The setup for this trip is that they begin marching forward on their ministry, but they really don't know exactly where the Lord wants them to go. It's one of my my favorite little accounts of Scripture because they they leave right here in Antioch. This is what happens in the first few verses of chapter 16, and they begin to go on on this missionary trip. And when we get to verse 6 and and following, uh, it's it's interesting, They, they say, that, that Paul wanted to go north into an area to do some ministry, but it says the Spirit of God forbid him. They, he wanted to go south, but it says the Spirit of Christ said no. And so what we see is Paul really doesn't know where they're supposed to go. And he's coming up with ideas, and for whatever reason, the door keeps closing. We don't know if circumstances closed the door. We don't know if it was just a, a sense within his spirit. We don't know if he had a dream or a vision. It doesn't articulate what that was. But it just lets us know that there was some confusion inside of Paul and his team about where they were going to go. As they're making their journey across this region, which is the region of Galatia, they pick up Timothy with them. And so Timothy becomes a part of the touring team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that is moving across this region. But they just keep going. And the reason why I think this is so fascinating is that they did just keep going. They're walking through here, and Paul says, I want to go north, and God says, no. Paul says, I want to go south, and God says, no. Paul didn't go, okay, enough, God. Apparently, you don't want me involved in anything. I'm going back to Antioch until you make this a little more clear. But it says over verses 6 to 10 that Paul just kept going all the way till they got to Troas. Now, again, let's, let's think about the geography of this. When they get to Troas, again, the blue is land, the gray is water. What is just west of Troas? The sea, right? The sea is what's just west of Troas. So when they get to that point, he's literally at the end of the road. So God doesn't give Paul a dream or a vision or 
send him a memo or have a prophet go and tell him where to go when they're in Derby, and he doesn't do it when they're in Iconium, and he doesn't do it when they're in Pisidian Antioch, and he doesn't do it when they're in the middle of the Asian region, but all the way when he's at the end of the road. So he just keeps walking, keeps walking, and eventually his toes are in the water. There is no place else that he can go. And it's at that point that God gives Paul a vision. And the vision that he has in a dream, God says, go over into Europe. Now, Paul's vision, Paul's idea was noble, right? His, his idea was, let's keep going in this Galatian region and visit our church friends that we've met in that area, and let's keep building those churches, and let's keep working in this area, and let's get a lot of traction in this area where we have already been. But it was God's plan all along that the gospel would go not just to Jerusalem and not just to Judea and Samaria, but ultimately where? To the ends of the earth. So he takes him to the end of his earth, and then he says, I want you to get in a boat and I want you to go over to the other side because the gospel needs to go to Europe. And for the first time, the gospel is going to make it there through Paul. Now, What's a life response from this first section? Well, I think a life response is to understand that God really does use all things in our lives, even hard relational issues and confusing life circumstances. You know, when we read in Romans 8, 28, that God works together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, we read that and we like it. And we want to put it on t-shirts, we want to put it on calendars, we want to memorize it. And we want to think that that verse is awesome because what it means is that God will use awesome things to make me awesome, right? That's, that, that's what we think. But the reality is when it says all things, it means all things, including breaking up the band with your best friend at times, like Paul and Barnabas. And it includes even some times of lack of clarity on what the next step might be. Friends, that ought to give us some encouragement because most of us may not have gotten a, a, a dream or a vision like Paul did in Troas, but all of us have walked through the difficulty of not knowing which way to go when a difficult decision is in front of us or experiencing the pain and frustration of, of what we thought was our partner in business or ministry or life heading in a different direction and the challenge and frustration that comes with that, this account at the setup of this trip reminds me that God really does work all things because what happens in these first few verses is the setup, the springboard, the bounce into some of the most significant ministry that is recorded for us um, in the New Testament, the things that will happen on this trip. So a response and a perspective for us to have as we look at the beginning of this section. But now let's move on, and let's look at what happens in the locations that Paul visits on this trip. So the first location I want us to think about is Philippi. Now, Philippi, that name sounds familiar to us. Why? Because of the book that Paul writes, or the letter that he writes, the epistle that he writes to the Philippians. We, we know this location because it's included inside of our Bible in a prominent way. That relationship that Paul had with the people in Philippi began at a very specific time. It began on the second missionary journey when Paul took the gospel into Europe. Now, an important thing for us to see as a part of this 
is that Paul is connected with Luke as he makes that journey over to Philippi. We know that because this, the, the, ver, or the, the pronouns change in Acts. Up to this point, it's they, he, them. But beginning in Acts chapter 16, it shifts to a we. And we know at this point it's because Luke has joined the team. Now, that is significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, we, we think we know that Luke was actually from the region of Philippi. That was where he had grown up. So God provides this amazing guide to the area before Paul's going to make the trip. He, he meets Luke at some point on the lead up to the city of Troas, but at that point Luke becomes a traveling mate. Uh, but it also reminds us of Luke's background. Luke is a Gentile. Timothy was a Gentile. God is building a Gentile team around the Jewish background believer of Paul to take the gospel to the Jewish world. And even adding people to that team, like Luke, who he's going to meet before he takes the boat over into Philippi, that God has specifically provided to enhance his ministry there. They head into Philippi, and it's helpful for us to, again, get oriented to where that is. Here's where the trip began in Antioch. This region here was the region of Galatia. They walk through that point. They get to Troas. At this point, they get on a boat, and they go to the city of Philippi, which is up kind of in northern Greece-type area um, would be where that is. And so that's where they end up. So what happened in the city of Philippi? Well, a few things that we would see of note in their ministry in Philippi. First was the conversion of a woman named Lydia. Really, the first convert in Europe that we know of was Lydia. Uh, it was a woman, and she's featured here. She's a, a, a prominent woman. She had a, a business. She dyed clothes purple. And we see this, this, uh, uh, her, her, her story highlighted here in Acts chapter 16. Um, again, this is, this is interesting to see because we see not only her conversion, but also the conversion of her family. And we see the New Testament's attitude towards women continue from inside the ministry of Jesus. You know, Jesus freely welcomed women as his followers. It wasn't a men-only club. He welcomed women to follow him as well, women like Mary Magdalene and others. And we see that happening here on the second missionary journey of Paul. The first convert in Europe was a woman, and with her, her entire household ends up trusting in Christ as well. Now, what else happened in Philippi? Well, another thing that happened in Philippi we see in verses 16 through 24 of chapter 16 was that Paul cast out a demon from a young girl that was being exploited because of that uh, demonic oppression that she had. They, they were using her to, to, to see things and do things that, that were gaining a profit for her handlers. Paul casts out the demon that is inside of her, and in a moment, these people who were oppressing this woman went from having someone that was giving them a profit to somebody that no longer would give them any benefit or value. And suddenly they got really upset. And so they speak out against Paul, and they go to the local authorities, and they said, this guy Paul has shown up. And since he's shown up, he's doing these crazy things, and they, they make these outlandish claims about Paul. But ultimately they were mad that he had cut into their business. Because as he did his ministry and worked it out, what they made a profit from was going away. 
And so Paul and Silas are arrested. And as they are arrested, they are beaten with rods, and then they are taken to the deepest, darkest dungeon of the Philippian jail, and they are chained there. Now, in that environment, you can imagine what that would feel like, right? Would that be a hard experience? I think so. You've just been beaten with rods, and now your, your legs are shackled in the inner, deepest, darkest dungeon in Philippi. I'm guessing that was not a nice place to be. It didn't smell good. It didn't look good. It wasn't good. But there they were. And it would have been possible in that moment for them to be just dealing in a little bit of self-pity. I think that's probably where I would have been. Lord, we left everything back in Antioch, and I wanted to minister in Galatia, but you had me keep going, and then you gave me this vision, and now I got beaten with rods, and now I'm chained to a post, and what good is this going to be now? It's totally possible that those are things that, that would have been a temptation for Paul and Silas to think. But instead, we see the most remarkable response in chapter 16, verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and they were singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, they were not in there feeling sorry for themselves. They, they weren't in there sobbing into their wounds. But in that moment, they are singing praise to God. Don't you want to know what they were singing? I mean, clearly amazing grace, right? Just ahead of its time. I don't know what they were singing, but they were singing hymns to God in the midst of that situation. And then this amazing thing happens. God intervenes in a remarkable way. The chains are loosened. An earthquake happens. The doors of the jail swing open. And it looks like they could be freed. Well, in the midst of all that ruckus, the jailer wakes up as well. And he looks in and he sees the door of the jail open. And he assumes that what has happened is that the prisoners have escaped. I mean, if you're a prisoner, who stays in the cell, right? And so the jailer grabs a sword, and he's going to commit suicide because his life is over. He's let these prisoners escape. And he hears a voice come from the other side of the cave that says, Hey, 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 don't do anything like that. We're here, all of us. Not just Paul and Silas, but they've all stayed. We're getting ready for the second service. Jailer, come on in. And so the jailer comes in and his words to, to Paul and to Silas are, are really remarkable. He says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In other words, there is something you have that I have never seen before. And you're willing to get beaten for it, and you're willing to get chained about it, and then you're going to sing about it, and then you have a chance to escape, and you don't move. I want to know what it is that you believe. I want to know who it is that's on your side. And so they present to him the gospel, and he trust in Christ, and then he says, I want you to meet my family, and he takes them home, and he cleans their wounds, and they have, you know, pancakes, and, and then after they have pancakes, and over those pancakes, he, he shares with them, as Paul shared with his family, the gospel, and they believe as well as the story is told, and then all of this jailer's family are baptized in his household, um, and it's just a remarkable, remarkable moment. Well, after that remarkable transformation in this city, um, and as the jailhouse rocked, um, Paul moves on to another town. But before we leave Philippi, 
what's a response that we would have? And I think a response that we would have in, in light of what we have seen inside of what happened in Philippi is this. Sing through your sufferings. Sing through your sufferings. A number of years ago, um, I heard John MacArthur say this. He says, fill your home with the songs of the Lord. And that was his answer to the question, how do you raise children who have a strong and robust faith in God? He said, fill your home with the songs of the Lord. What he meant was, we're going to borrow the words of others. That's what a song is, isn't it? We're borrowing someone else's words. Someone else has taken a great truth and they have put it together in a memorable way into a tune so that we can hear it again and again and be reminded of that truth. You know, I'm, I'm afflicted with the fact that I'm a child of the 80s. And because of that, I can tell you the words to a number of Bon Jovi songs. Why do I know the words to those songs? Did I ever set out to memorize them? The answer is no. But I just heard them enough that though the tune and the words stuck in my head and it's, it's somehow lodged deep inside of me. So it comes out at random times when I'm mowing the yard or I'm on a run or whatever it might be. But when we fill our home and we fill our mind and we fill our heart with the songs of the Lord, the songs that we sing on Sunday, the, the hymns that we that we sing, that we grew up with, the, the music that we listen to. When we fill our homes with the, the songs of the Lord, then what happens when we go through suffering and trials is that's what can come out of us. And when it comes out of us, it reminds us of the truth. We're borrowing the words of another to describe a reality that we need in that moment. And we remember it because of the tune, and we remember it because of the repetition that we've done with it. But the power of it is the truth of who it points to. There's no power in a Bon Jovi song, but there's power in songs about our Savior. And so if we think about how we might prepare ourselves to sing in the midst of suffering, we need to fill our home with the songs of the Lord so that when we are going through difficulty, we can borrow the encouragement and the words of another to point our souls to what is true and what is right. This is an example of what happened in the city of Philippi. Well, after leaving Philippi, where'd they go? Next, they go to the place of Thessalonica. Again, why do we know Thessalonica? Yeah, because there's, there's a couple of letters that were written there, right? Paul writes letters to the Thessalonians, uh, two of them that are kept inside of our Scripture. So this is another prominent location. And we find out about Thessalonica and the ministry that Paul did there in chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. In this section, Paul preached in that area, and he preached a very simple message from the, the platform of the synagogue in that city. Uh, he preached this. He said he explained and he proved that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And this is what he said, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. In other words, Jesus is not just an ordinary guy. Jesus is the one who died, the one who rose again, and he did that to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might have a relationship with God. That simple message is the message that Paul was proclaiming in the city of Thessalonica. Now, what else happened in that area? Well, first of all, let's find out where it is. Thessalonica, very close to Philippi, moving down a little further into Greece at this point. Thessalonica was the capital of that region of uh, the Roman Empire. Philippi was a prominent city in that region of commerce. Thessalonica was the, the capital city of that region. 
Paul and Silas and team, Luke and others ended up there. And we saw the simple message that Paul was proclaiming there in the synagogue. But as he proclaimed that message, opposition arose. And this time it didn't arise from someone whose slave girl had had a demon cast out of her. But here the opposition comes from Jewish people. People are beginning to believe this message. And the Jewish people in the city of Thessalonica are getting upset because Paul is turning people away from their school of thought into this way of following Christ. And so they stir up some trouble for Paul and they take it to the courts of that area and they begin to try to intimidate Paul into shutting up and leaving Thessalonica. Ultimately, the way that they do that is they take Jason, who was apparently a friend uh, a convert there in the city who was partnering with, uh, with, with Paul in that region. Um, they take Jason and they drag him before the courts and they push him around and they insult him. And ultimately, they end up extorting money out of him. This isn't a typo. When I say they were extorting Paul's friends, some of you thought, doesn't he mean exhorting? Like they were being kind to them. No, they were extorting them. Who was extorting Paul's friends? Well, the political leaders in the city of Thessalonica in order to get to and intimidate Paul. Now, I'm guessing that to some degree, it was easier for Paul to be beaten with rods on his own body than to watch his friend, his new friend, who had shown him hospitality and protection, suddenly be drugged through the mud and have his fortune taken away. But Paul endured that in the city of Thessalonica. And after Jason took that one for Paul's team, Paul and the gang take off from Thessalonica, and head up to another place. So what's a response we might see this time in Thessalonica? Well, one of the things that I think we need to remember at this point is that God is the one causing the growth in your ministry. Now, I I say that because we know of Thessalonica because it developed into something remarkable, right? The, The church in Thessalonica was prominent. Prominent enough that Paul would write two letters to it. It had a a significant influence in that area. But Paul's time in Thessalonica was actually quite short. He was run out of town very early because of the opposition that was found there to his message. And yet, from that little seed that Paul planted in that city, a church bloomed that would grow and grow and grow. And it's just a reminder that Jesus was not dependent exclusively on Paul to get his work done. But Jesus could even take brand new believers in that area and grow them into a church that was influential just through his work and his time and in his way. And that's a good reminder for us because sometimes we can think that we're way more important than we are, right? That it's, it's all about us and whatever position or responsibility or role that we have. The reality is that the God that we serve has the cattle on a thousand hills. And his spirit that works inside of us could just as easily work inside of another. By God's grace, we, he uses us in different environments and settings. And some of us he uses in environments and settings for long periods of time in one location. But it's never, never about the individual. And it's always about what Jesus is up to. And we see a reminder of that through a very short investment of Paul leading to a very robust and dynamic church over time in the city of Thessalonica. So after their time in Thessalonica, where did he go? Well, next he goes to the city of Berea. Now, why do we know Berea? 
We don't have a letter to the church of Berea. But we know Berea because there are churches today that are named Berean Church. Right? Have you ever heard of a church? Anybody ever heard of a church that's called Berean? There's a prominent uh, church up in, in uh, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska that is, that is Lincoln Berean Church. Uh, some people here at Wild would have connections and friends and family who are up there. But this word Berean is connected to churches today for a, a good reason. Because in the city of Berea, Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy receive a really dynamic and good response. And that response is articulated in Acts 17, 11. It says that the Bereans received the word that they taught with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The Bereans were listening to what Paul was saying, and then they were going back to their scrolls and checking it out in their Old Testament to see if what he said lined up with the things that were prophesied. And this was commended, right? There wasn't a sense where Paul showed up and said, I am Paul, and I've got a track record. And let me tell you about this, that, and the other thing. And you need to do everything I say just because it's me, and I will, you know, on and on and on. It wasn't a Paul-based argument. But the people of Berea were commended because they were listening to Paul, and they were going then and checking out what Paul and, and Silas and Timothy and Luke were saying about Jesus against the Old Testament scriptures. And it was something that, that they were celebrated for. Now, where is Berea? Berea, again, was just a little further down the coast. So Thessalonica there is covered up. But as you can see, he just continued to move a little further down into Greece, uh, the area of Greece today. What are some of the things that happened in Berea? Well, we, we've seen that they were checking out what Paul was saying and comparing it to the Old Testament scriptures. We also know that many people were believing and responding to the message that was being proclaimed. But we also know that the Jews of Thessalonica were not content to kick Paul out of Thessalonica, but they chased him down to Berea. They didn't want him not just in their city, but they didn't even want him in their area. And so they began to stir up trouble for Paul in the region of uh, Berea as well. So much trouble that Paul leaves prematurely in his time in Berea and heads down to Athens in order to get far away from the influence of the Jews in Thessalonica. And he left Timothy and Silas there in, in Berea to continue the ministry. But Paul needed to get out of there. The heat was just too, too hot. And so Paul here is, is separated from the rest of his team. Now, you can imagine uh, the emotion of that. You know, we, it's just like a little note inside of our scripture, but that would have been a significant thing. You know, he, he'd been beaten by rods. He was confused about where he was to go. He was, he was jailed. Uh, he was run out of Thessalonica. And now he's having to separate from his, his newfound BFFs, right? It's a challenging time that Paul is going through. But he ends up down in the next location that we'll look at in a moment. But in light of all this, what do we take away from the time that Paul had in Berea? Well, what we take away, I think, is an encouragement for us to be a Berean as well. You know, if, if Paul's message that he was preaching was something that people were commended for comparing what he was saying to Scripture, that ought to be a pattern that we continue even today. 
Don't allow anyone on a stage and a microphone to have what they say unchecked by the truth of God. Right? Just because somebody says it well, just because somebody says it smooth, just because somebody says it slick, just because somebody is published and their book is, is on the shelf at a bookstore, just because they're on a conference speaker tour, does not mean that what they say is true. And just because somebody is even the pastor of your church doesn't mean that they couldn't be confused from time to time. And God has a plan to keep his church from getting off course. And that plan is that he gave his word in an understandable way for the congregation to have, not just the leaders to have, so that the congregation can look into God's word and see if what they are hearing lines up with the truth that is written. And insofar as a leader is speaking God's truth and it's backed up by Scripture, then the congregation should move forward and you as an individual should move forward in faith and obedience. But if what somebody is pointing you or teaching you or saying or what you're reading, if it doesn't line up with Scripture, then, then we would be commended. We would do well to stay away from that truth and that teaching. Um, it happened with the Bereans and we see that example held up even for us today, so that people today would attend churches called Berean Christian Church, and it's just as saying, we're going to compare what we hear and what we write and what we read with the inerrant Word of God delivered to us in the Scriptures. So fourth response we see from this missionary journey. But where does he go next? Well, next Paul goes to the city of Athens. Now, we know Athens, and we know Athens why. Not because we have a book, the letter to the Athens, the Athenians, but we know it because it's a very prominent city, right? In the ancient world, Athens, Rome, these are, these are big places, uh, centers of thought and government and, and rule in this era of time. Athens was a very prominent place, and Paul goes down to that city. Now, what happens when he gets there is that he finds a very different environment than the other places that he has visited. Up to this time, when Paul went into a city, you see a very repeated pattern. He goes into the city, he finds the synagogue. What religion was practiced at the synagogue? Judaism, the Jewish faith. Paul, being a Jew in his background, would go to the synagogue and he would teach there. But when he gets to Athens, he's not going to the synagogue. Let you know a little bit about what's happening in, in Athens. And when Paul would go into the synagogue, he typically would open the scriptures and he would read something like Isaiah's prophecy and then he would explain it and he would point people to Christ. But when he goes to Athens, there's no Isaiah scroll to open up. And the people there are very confused about what's up and down and right and wrong and religion and all these kinds of things. So Paul shows up and there's no synagogue and there's no Isaiah but what there is is a group of people who have built a shopping mall to various gods and they've built it across a hillside and people would wander around and offer you know, little prayers and incantations at different idols to different gods. Paul sees this scene and he goes to this environment. And when he shows up in that spot right here in the heart of Greece, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is we get a reminder that he's not in Kansas anymore, right? Um, you know, if, if you've seen um, The Wizard of Oz, that line makes some sense to you, right? When, when Dorothy and Toto end up in Oz, 
they look around and there's flying monkeys and they're, they're not in Kansas anymore. It's just an understanding they are far from home. This is a place that is running on a different set of rules and a different set of assumptions about life. And when Paul shows up in Athens, what he, what he looks around and sees and describes and what's talked about in verses 16 to 21 is an environment that is very, very different. There are all these idols to different gods and people are, are very confused about what to do and, and what to say. Well, inside of that environment, Paul ends up deploying a different strategy for his new setting in order to proclaim the same message of Christ. And I want to actually read for us Paul's sermon that he gave at a place called the Oropagus because it's a very interesting way to see the contrast of how he preached in this environment from how he spoke in the synagogue. It says here in verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. We're in a shopping mall of idols and altars. It says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You can imagine this, this altar and this idol. They, they just thought, yeah, we, we've built altars and idols to every God we can imagine, but we're guessing we forgot one, so let's put another one out there just to cover all of our bases. Paul sees this scene and he says, you, you acknowledge that you don't know everything. Let me fill in the gap for the God that you are missing. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, and as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. In other words, instead of here quoting Isaiah the prophet, he quotes John Bon Jovi. And then he says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is he talking about? Jesus. He walks them all the way through everything. The, the God that you don't know is the God who made everything. And the God who made everything, we're going to have to be accountable to one day. And that God who made everything is going to hold us accountable to how we respond to one man, Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. In short order, he takes a group of people that are absolutely, completely lost spiritually. And he takes them to the, right to the edge of the need of the gospel. He says, now... When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. I just love that. It's a great response. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
people began to respond even in a pagan place like Athens. Friends, I, I share this with you today because I think that we are understanding more all the time that we live more in Athens than in the synagogue. As time goes on in our world, uh, and as, as people grow up in different educational systems, as they grow up in, in different home environments, as they grow up where different kinds of worldviews are being promoted through media and through what we read and our entertainment sources, people are f- more and more all the time looking at the world through Athenian eyes, not the eyes of the synagogue. And so we need to remember that when we go to talk about Christ with them. There are things that make a lot of sense to us and terminology that makes a lot of sense to us that we need to think through how we can explain that in a world that may not understand or speak Christianese. So it leads us to our response, and our response needs to be to adapt our strategy for our setting. Adapt our strategy for our setting, not adapt our truth. The truth is the truth. Jesus is Jesus. He doesn't shape, you know, shift shape in those kinds of things. He is who he is. But our strategy of introducing people to him has often assumed an understanding, a shared understanding about who Jesus is. But friends, today, more and more all the time, we cannot take that as a correct assumption. So we must begin to introduce people to who Jesus really is. And sometimes it begins by going all, about, all the way back to there is a God who created everything. And we will be accountable to that God. And that God who created everything will hold us accountable to our response to Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. Andy Stanley has said this. He says, we need to be stubborn with our vision, but flexible with our plans. Stubborn with the truth that we proclaim. We don't compromise on the truth. But we need to understand that people are coming from different spots today than they were. And and that egg is continually scrambled more and more all the time. Where does he go next? Well, next he ends up in the city of Corinth. What happens in Corinth is he shows up and and he's, he's challenged, right? We began our time with the quote from Paul to his friends in Corinth that said, when I showed up among you, I showed up and I was doing awesome and I was celebrating. That's what it said, right? No, it said, when I showed up among you, I came to you in fear and in trembling. Paul was beaten up. He'd been separated from his friends. He'd been hanging out with the pagans on, on, on Mars Hill in Athens. He, he had been imprisoned and beaten. He'd been kicked out of the synagogue of all these cities, and he had lived on, on the run. And when he showed up in Corinth, he was, he was just beat up. And it's in this moment that God speaks to him in a dream. And this is what God the Father says to Paul at this moment. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, there is something that's going to happen that's different from everywhere else you've been on this trip. And it's going to happen a little differently in the city of Corinth. Is I'm going to take care of you in the midst of this journey of you telling others about me. Corinth, again, a little further down from Athens. And what happened in that location? 
Well, one of the things that happened is that Paul made the acquaintance of a couple of fellow tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla, who would become some of his partners in ministry. Their names are familiar to us because they show up in a number of Paul's other letters. Uh, they had gifts in teaching and training and church leadership, and they play a prominent role in the rest of the New Testament. And we see Paul meet them in Corinth. Paul, part of God's plan to take care of Paul in this moment was the addition of these friends. We also see in, in Corinth, we see a change in strategy. And when Paul gets to Corinth, there's a synagogue there. He goes and he begins to preach and, and trouble begins to stir again. And so Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm tired of this. I've gone to every respectable synagogue this side of the Aegean. And I have been kicked out of all of them. I'm wiping my hands. It's on you at this point. And he goes over to a house and he begins to teach in the house next to the synagogue. And what transpires after that is 18 months of peace and ministry and growth and establishment of the church. And I would go so far as to say care for Paul in that moment that God gave him this moment of rest in the city of Corinth. What do we take away from that time? Well, one of the things I think we take away is that we should look for the grace of God at times of stress and difficulty. God cares for us when we are stressed and in difficulty, just as God cared for Paul. But it's interesting that Paul's time of rest did not come on vacation. It came even on a mission trip. But it came as he allowed Paul to be ministered to by these friends that shared an occupation with him. You know, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they had this, this hobby together, this business together. They were able to make some tents. They were able to make some money to replenish the coffers, to continue the, 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 the ministry that they were doing. Um, they were able to encourage one another, and a deep friendship is formed that will go with Paul for the rest of his life. They're able to see God do some things in the transformation of people's lives in the city of Corinth as the church is built and established there. And so there's a lot of great things that happen there. So the rest that God gives Paul in this moment and the grace that he gave him was not the cessation of activity, but it was just a little bit of a different speed, a little bit of a different rhythm, and ultimately the provision of a relationship that would provide care for him at that time. When we're in the midst of difficulty, might we look for the grace of God in similar places? Not with God just taking away all challenges and difficulties or just giving us rest or vacation, though that may be a part of it. But at times God provides us relief just through the connections we have with fellow believers and the opportunity to maybe hit a little different gear in our lives and ministry. What happens next in verses 18 through 22 is Paul's journey home. The second missionary journey is over when Paul gets back to Antioch, which is where it all began. As he leaves Corinth, though, uh, it's important to note that he ends up in the city of Ephesus. They make a quick stop in Ephesus on the way back to Antioch. Um, that's important, again, because Ephesus is a place we know about because a New Testament letter was written there. And Paul just spends a short time there he has a cup of coffee with them and they say please stay please stay and tell us more and Paul says guess what I'll try to get back here on my next trip something that indeed happens that we'll see next week but Paul's initial connection was on the way home from the second missionary journey 
He comes through Ephesus, leaves Corinth, comes through Ephesus, and ends up back in Antioch. Now, when we think of this and we think of Paul's statement, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, probably we all have a greater understanding now after walking through that trip why Paul would say that to describe how he was feeling as he arrived in the city of Corinth. But in case we need to be reminded, let's look at this in a little bit of a chart. So here is the second missionary journey. And let's ignore this side for a moment, and let's just look at what might have led to some fear and some difficulties in each of the locations where Paul was. He begins in Antioch with the breakup of the band. Paul and Barnabas, you know, Sonny and Cher, whatever, the the band broke up at this point, right? And, And that would have been very difficult for Paul to experience at the start of this trip. Then we we move to Galatia. As they're walking through the Galatian region, remember there was confusion. Paul wanted to go one way, wanted to go the other. It was unclear where he was to go. That would have been a difficult experience, a a fearful experience even to go through possibly. He ends up in the city of Philippi. He's beaten and imprisoned. He ends up in Thessalonica. His friend Jason is extorted on Paul's behalf. He ends up in Berea. There is a temporary separation from his traveling mates. and He he has to part ways with them, and it would have brought on an experience of loneliness he he had not had up to that point in the journey. Not only that time in Berea, but he gets to Athens, and he's surrounded by these pagan gods and this very different world from the one which he normally lived within and the challenges that would have brought about. And then he ends up in Corinth, and he expresses his just exhaustion and his fear and his trembling, his state at the time of that trip. If those are the things that God might have done to, or that that, that Paul might have experienced that would have brought fear, what did God do in response? And in each of those locations, it's fascinating to see the grace of God show up. But what did the grace of God look like in each of those spots? It looked a lot like you and me, friends. It looked a lot like us. In Antioch and in the early part of the trip, it was Timothy, the provision of Timothy in Derby, who joined the the team. In Galatia, all the way over to Troas, it was Luke who was added to the team. In, In Philippi, it was Lydia and her family and the jailer who came to faith, these, these new partners and friends that Paul had, the affection that he had with Philippi that shows up in his letter was birthed in that jailhouse that night and was birthed around Lydia's table seeing their family come to faith. It was the grace of God. In Thessalonica, it was Jason who stood up for these new friends and would not let them be mistreated. He took one for the team so that Paul might continue his ministry in other cities. In Berea, it was the sincere seekers who were diving into God's word and the encouragement that would have brought to Paul. In Athens, it was Damaris and and others in the city who heard the message of Paul and didn't just hear it and say, nice message, pastor, but they believed it and they saw their lives transform forever. And in Corinth, it was Priscilla and Aquila. Friends, the grace of God to Paul in the midst of his fear and in the midst of his trembling 
We're people. Now, we, we often think that in order for someone to be used by God, they must be someone better than me. They must be a superhero. But I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, this column of folks, much like Paul himself, but, but certainly this column of folks, these were not people with capes. These were not people who had been zapped with gamma rays. These were not people who had superhuman powers greater than is accessible for you and I through the Spirit of God in Christ. They were normal people. But you know what they did? They showed up. They loved. They cared. They gave what they had for the advancement of the gospel in their cities. And in that, we see the grace of God, not only for the transformation of the world, but also for our experience of it. You know, it, it, it's really it's too small a thing for us to describe the second missionary journey of Paul from the perspective of what it did in Paul's life. I mean, what this missionary journey did was it planted churches in the most prominent cities in the eastern half of Europe. I mean, this was a remarkable trip, a remarkable trip. And God was doing big things through it in the world. But God also was very careful to care for Paul along the way. And he cared for him through his grace showing up in different people's lives. I don't know who in your life right now God wants you to be a Timothy or a Luke or a Lydia or Jason or Damaris or Priscilla or Aquila. I think it's also interesting that there are just as many women as men on that list, right? It's not like God only uses some of them. He's going to use all of them. How he uses them is up to God's sovereignty and his will. But it's awesome to see on this journey the grace of God showing up in flesh and blood people like us. I don't know who God wants to use you to encourage, but also I want to encourage you. That's the reason why we gather. That's the reason why we get together. You're here not just, you know, for, for uh, you know, to, to serve others, but also to be ministered to by others. You know, our time tonight is, is not just about me spitting out some information, but hopefully it's some conversations that might have on the way in or the way out. It's a relationship that might begin to form as God might use each of us in our lives to be the demonstration of His grace to move us forward according to His plans. Friends, inside of the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel progress, and we need to be reminded that Jesus is alive and well. The church that He is building is growing and going. It's planted amidst difficulty with His grace empowering it all the way. And next week, we're going to see a sense of discipleship and growth in these churches and destiny as Paul points his sights towards Rome. And I hope you'll be back with us next week as we continue this study together. Let me pray for us. Father God, thanks so much for the opportunity to open your word and to study it. I thank you for just this amazing trip that Paul went on and all you accomplished through it in the establishment of the church around the world, but also what you are doing through it, even in Paul's life. And it reminds us that you want to involve us in your big work around the world, but you also care for us in the meantime. Thank you for that. May we be Jason's and Lydia's and Priscilla's and Aquila's to each other as we live out our life inside of the body of Christ.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us tonight. I look forward to seeing you all next week.